You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine. How to empower and strengthen women is the role that maternal child health and nutrition. Because stigma, shame, and fear is what drives this disease into, and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. At the second international summit on human genome editing held in Hong Kong last fall, Professor J.K. Hua made a controversial announcement that he had made heritable genetic changes in human embryos, which resulted in the birth of twin girls. This action has been universally condemned and has sparked intense international debate over whether human germline genome editing should be permitted at all and what regulatory or governance framework is needed looking ahead into the future. In this episode of Take as Directed, I sit down with Dr. Victor Zhao, president of the National Academy of Medicine, which was one of the conveners of the summit in Hong Kong in November of last year, and a convener of the previous summit held in Washington in 2015. Dr. Zhao is a prominent leader in the global conversation as the scientific community seeks the best way forward. Victor, thank you so much for being with us here today at CSIS. We are here to talk about the events in Hong Kong. Dr. J.K. Hu, back in November at the Human Genome Summit in Hong Kong, which you were an organizer and sponsor of that summit. Tell us, what happened in terms of Dr. Hu's announcement, and why did that cause such an enormous splash in response? Well, it was totally unexpected that he made the announcement the day before our summit that he's done it. He said he's basically used the technique and made CRISPR babies. What that means is that he actually went on and edited the embryo, the genome of an embryo, which resulted in pregnancy that led to two babies, twins. And that is way before anybody imagined that someone would start doing this. So that was a great surprise. I think that aside from that great surprise was because, you know, the whole issue of responding to whether this was ethical or not, why did he do it, and whether, in fact, he did it and what happened to these babies. I think these were all major issues. So when Dr. Herb started making public announcement as we arrived in Hong Kong, we became aware that since he was invited to speak not on the subject but on something else, of what should we do with this. So, yeah, we had to scramble mightily, and a group of people got together with him just to take a look at his data the night before. And, you know, it appears that he did do it. The science was not outstanding, but sufficient to give you evidence that something has happened. So you established that this was credible. Yes, credible in the sense that he did it. It's not great science because there are lots of issues that's unaddressed but that he did conduct the embryo gene editing resulting pregnancy. 
So from a distance, watching this unfold, I was really struck by how the response was immediate and universal shock and condemnation. David Baltimore delivered the statement as the chairman, which was pretty fierce, pretty strong. Certainly that was not what Dr. Hu expected, right? He was expecting acclaim, not condemnation. So explain to me, how did he arrive at that expectation that he was going to present and be viewed in a very positive way? Well, the condemnation happened much earlier than actually David Baltimore's statement at the end of the meeting. 125 Chinese scientists condemned it right away because he went actually public first. And then he came to the meeting to present. We didn't even know whether he was going to show up or not because he checked out the hotel and say that kind of very aggressive response worried him about his safety. So he decided to check out the hotel, but he did show up the next day or two days later on the day in which he was supposed to present. Just to give you an idea, there were 250 press reporters at the place, literally crowding and storming the place. And a lot of work had to be done in trying to create some kind of control because you can imagine after this presentation, there'll be lots of questions, right? So we had that under control. And then as we had live fed this live stream, at one point, 1.8 million people watched this. This is a big deal. But I think coordinating, organizing, and keeping order is a big issue. But I believe this is the response is already happening immediately when this is known, which goes to show that the world just doesn't think this is ready, right? And that he had this naive idea, I believe, that he'll be greatly glorified by being the first to do this, right? And so consequently, as you heard David Baltimore at the end of the meeting, and then myself and Marshall McNutt, the president of the National Academy of Science, also wrote a statement to say, we think this is irresponsible. You had a chance to interact personally with Dr. Hu. Briefly. What were your impressions of him? I mean, was he sincere? Was he naive? Was he a rogue? Was he, how would you characterize Yeah, I can't say that that much time with him because I was really among a few people chatting. Others have spent more time with him. So I'll give you maybe other people's impression. I think people think he was naive to think that this is going to really propel him as a pioneer and possibly even Nobel Prize being the first one to apply this technology. He in some way sounded people out when he was beginning to do this work by having one individual discussions throughout the year in speaking to scientists. And I think most people told him, I don't think it's a good idea, but I think he proceeded with this anyway. So he's both naive and determined. Let's step back for a moment. Germline cell editing, that is editing of embryos, sperm, eggs, this is distinctly different from what is called somatic cell therapy which is correcting the genetic structure of an adult or a person that doesn't replicate generationally. Maybe you could explain for our listeners, why is it that the germline cell therapy is so sensitive Mm -hmm. and so uncertain and volatile as an issue? Because it remains distinctly more sensitive and controversial than the somatic side. The somatic side has lots of issues, but it's fundamentally different. Yeah, first, the technique itself. This is an amazing advance in science, the ability to edit the genome in a precise fashion they call molecular scissor. 
you can actually know exactly where you're going to cut a piece of genome out. You can even replace it. So you can imagine how amazing this technique is. As you point out, there's still some work to be done in working out all the kinks, but certainly in experimental study, it has great promise, which is why everybody starts thinking about what can we do with disease, and appropriately so, right? Now, the issue in treating disease in people, older people, younger people like you and me and others, you know, it really involves delivering this technique, this CRISPR-Cas, into a tissue or cell of your body and correcting the genetic defect. That is totally doable and also have a current regulatory framework, not very different from gene therapy, not even different from biologics, if you will. So consequently, we know how to monitor, how to look at safety, and how to approve it in the long run, and how to look at, of course, efficacy. On the embryo side, of course, you can do that too to monitor the outcome, but it's a lot more complicated. But perhaps the biggest concern is the fact that you have changed the embryo. The genetic makeup has changed. So from then on, from generation to generation, they no longer contain the gene that you have deleted or edited, etc. And if you make a mistake, and if you're yes. not really addressing a serious enough problem, and in the execution you make a mistake, yeah. and you have off-target or inadvertent side effects that are dangerous, there's no turning back. There's no reversal. That's right. Well, there may be in the future. Yes. With this kind of technique, you can reverse it possibly, but it's unlikely you ever... T- I would say the issue ranges from a broad issue of ethics to the issue of what you say, which is safety and, and untoward effects. The issue of ethics is a fundamental issue, right? That is, are we now ready to start manipulating people's genome that you can pass on indefinitely? For a long time, everybody's worried about human cloning. Well, you can argue this opens the door for human cloning. In fact, the human cloning piece, Dolly the sheep cloning, the technique is a lot more crude than what you can do with genetics today. So you can imagine that opens up the entire question, are we changing the human traits and the human race? The safety issue that you talk about, do we know, in fact, if you turn one gene off, let's say CCR5, which is the HIV gene, that you can actually prevent the HIV infection, but you're also reducing, possibly, your ability to prevent other infection as well. So on the one hand, you have the possibility here with germline editing of alleviating massive suffering, particularly for devastating diseases, particularly if they're single gene-based diseases. You could intervene early in an embryonic stage and dramatically improve the life prospects for that person if you know for sure that there's this risk here. But you're also opening the door on the other side towards cloning, towards eugenics, towards a world where it makes people very uncomfortable. Yeah, enhancement, right? Yes. The designer baby and all that stuff. I think that, in fact, exactly is where the debate is. Even though people say, yes, we should try to cure diseases that's devastating, but you recognize you also open the door for the possibility of designer babies. That whole spectrum of debate can start at the very beginning, don't do it at all, or do it only for these conditions, but not for these. The question is, in our society, are we able to have such clarity in overseeing when it can be done versus what cannot be done? Yeah. Now, the CRISPR technology first 
came to people's attention in 2011-12. The academies became very active. You hosted the first summit in Mm -hmm. 15. You had a big commission issue a report in 2017. You were a partner in staging this summit that just occurred in November of last year. You've been consulting very assiduously, very actively, intensively with the British and the Chinese academies around a next commission. Mm -hmm. So you've been at the center of the global debate around what does this technology mean and how do we need to think about it? What is a feasible and appropriate approach on the regulatory, ethics, oversight, scientific protocols, all of that spectrum of things that have to be taken care of. Tell us a bit, after November, you've been so intensely busy, what comes next here? So you're absolutely right. I think we need to continue those kind of conversation, discussion, debate, and broadly, including every sector possible. But what people believe that might have been missing in leading up to the event in Hong Kong or China is the lack of clarity in terms of what can or cannot be done. So our report in 2017 did articulate a very clear set of principles, but principles can be interpreted or misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. And I think to some extent that's what happens. So you need to refine and be more concrete. And importantly, need to be sure that this we have the buy-in of the world from a scientific viewpoint, from a medical ethics viewpoint, and from the regulatory viewpoint, right? So that's what we're doing. We're doing commission to include all the international academies together to say these are the standards by which you have to abide by before you can even imagine doing it in the human embryo. But there's another layer issue, which is, These issues in embryo are highly cultural and societal dependent. So there needs to be another level of discussion. Now that the academies, the International Commission has set the conditions and the science behind it, what is the debate within your own society, your own country? What are you willing to do or not? And that becomes a very complex issue. So I think that, as you said, we need series of very clear work going forward with evidence, and then a lot of discussion enabling each country to decide where it would be. And a lot of flexibility because the science is moving so quickly, right? That's right, exactly. I mean, the technologies, the particular specific CRISPR applications, what we're talking about today is going to be slightly different from what we're talking about in a year's time. So there has to be an adaptability and flexibility to this framework that comes forward. The point you make about there needs to be societal consensus or societal understanding and a feeling of engagement around these issues because they are so fundamental to our reality of being humans. Yes. So it touches people, and it's going to Mm -hmm. touch them in multiple directions. So you need the religious community. You know, you need all sectors of your society. Exactly. Now, the academies are really academies of the best and brightest of our scientific community. Mm -hmm. So you have a certain way of getting to that community as just your normal mission in business. How do you imagine a dialogue might unfold in America and society? Our commission, although it is indeed the experts who's going to get together, the experts, of course, is not only science, but ethicists and legal people and regulatory, all that stuff, we will broadly engage the public. You have to. So as you know, in our process, we usually have public hearing as part of our study process, very much like FACA, having you know, public input, et cetera. 
most of our fundings, at least certainly those which are now at the right stage, would be easily accessible to public as we begin to go forward deliberate. So that's key. I would imagine that that may not even be sufficient, but there ought to be other efforts to engage more specifically different public groups, patient groups, religious groups, etc. And that may be, in fact, extension of what we do. I think our main focus is looking at how to guide the science, the medical, and the ethics going forward. I was struck by the conversations we had earlier this afternoon. For instance, the overture that came from the Vatican at very high levels saying, okay, we represent 1.2 billion people in this globe, many different cultures and ethnicities and outlooks, but they share being Roman Catholics. We don't know what to think about this. How do we think about this? And that kind of query must be emerging in all corners, I would think. And the question is, how do you connect up to that in some meaningful way? That's why we keep talking about different cultures, different religion. And at the end of the day, just like in this country, when laws are passed, whatever is representation of democracy of how people believe what people think, right? Our job is to provide all that information in the most objective, independent way, enable those kind of governance decisions. Here in the United States, there are certain prohibitions on research on embryos. You understand very well the specific manner in which that is laid down. Tell us a bit about that, because I think it's important for our listeners to understand what the realities are on a legal side here in the United States, and whether that prohibits the U.S. scientific community from being in the lead and whether we're simply going to be on the sidelines, or whether there's some other set of opportunities to continue to navigate the current environment. Yeah, in the U.S., we have a prohibition in federal support of embryo research and human stem cell research. That means that you can get any funding from NIH or any source from federal government if you were to do this research. Does not prohibit private sector from doing research in that area, and that's research. But when it comes to application, particularly as you come to application in terms of the embryo in clinical application, you have to go through FDA. And there's a prohibition for FDA to consider any review of any application in that area. So in other words, in the lab doing research on embryos or sperm cells or eggs, private sector can go and do that. And it's legal. Crossing the bridge into implantation is prohibited. That's where the FDA comes in because you could not cross that bridge from the research side into the clinical because FDA is forbidden to even review an application for clinical use. That's correct. So what does this mean in your view in terms of the future? We're not alone, right? There are 30 countries that have a prohibition of some form on this. You know, I think this is interesting because – I believe we have to continue revisit some of these issues because science and technology is moving at a very rapid pace. And things which are possible, we need to think about whether it should be done. So, for example, we talked about recombinant DNA, not quite the same as embryo, but certainly it was great concern what recombinant DNA would do to our society. In the mid-70s, yeah. Yeah, mid-70s, you can clone. And so what's going to happen to us? What happened to organisms that we release? And of course, 40 years later, we've seen tremendous benefit of biotechnology to society. And the risk side is very well, shall we say, regulated and overseen. And so we can see the major examples, which has been disaster, right? 
it's possible, certainly, and very possible that this technology will follow the same path. We're now all worried about this, and once we know all the do's and don'ts, then it became highly useful for the society and human beings. What's the regulation yes. and policy around this? And we're still in the midst of working through mm-hmm. some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Are you hopeful that as the field evolves, as people's confidence in being able to manage this ethically and effectively, and as the promise of this becomes better understood, that we may be in a position as a matter of policy to revisit these issues? I think we should. And that's because it's mainly for the good of humanity and society, right? Revisiting, should we or should we not? Are we denying opportunities to greatly enhance human life? Or are we worried about it either crossing some line, whether it is religious or ethical line, I think that needs to be always debated on a continuing basis. You know, there are areas, for example, I think everybody agrees that human cloning, cloning human beings, is not something we want to do. After Dolly the Ship, nobody would think about cloning human, although animals are being cloned, right? I think that's the kind of thing I believe that society needs to look at what we would never do, or those which we can do in a measured basis, which can enable great benefit to individuals, if not to a larger society. Let's close by talking about what keeps you awake at night. You know, what are the realistic dark side scenarios in all of this? In other words, Dr. He was a shock, and it was potentially a destabilizing shock. It could have stimulated a set of negative reactions that perhaps might have overwhelmed or swung us in the wrong direction. I think it's actually had some very beneficial I agree. Yes, I agree. But we're still in a vulnerable period right now, it seems to me. What are the things that you worry the most about? Well, I mean, first of all, we all worry about rogue scientists who's gone ahead and do this. And Dr. Hur already said he has a second pregnancy, so there could well be others. I believe after the Hong Kong event, it's less likely now that someone will start doing it because it's so widely condemned. But I'm more worried about people who are in the charlatan space, because after all, we do know in stem cells, there are clinics in Mexico, many other countries claiming great benefit that people are going there to get treatment, right? And so you can imagine easily that in places which are much less regulated, that people claim they can do a lot of things, coupled with in vitro fertilization, to offer couples first treatment for diseases, But who knows? I can make you look better. I can make your kids look smarter. You never know. And even if you think along the lines of disease prevention, Mm -hmm. okay, not just devastating disease, which is genetic, like cystic fibrosis, but you have a high probability of going to get Alzheimer's somewhere in the future Mm -hmm. because of the risk in your family Mm -hmm. and the gene that you carry, say, APOE4. Now I can actually now prevent this altogether. So you can imagine the kind of conversation that goes through very strict conditions to a little bit broader, to a little bit broader, and then all the way to the lack of control. I think this is a significant problem. Yes. And the commercial realities, the commercial pressures could be very intense. Yes, very much so. And unregulated commercial pressure. So right now, today, you're not going to be able to get a product because of FDA would not review this, et cetera, right? But another country can simply say, we can do this for you. A dark corner somewhere. Yeah. Where this kind of dubious applications 
are marketed to a population exactly. that may not be may be vulnerable to itself by the fears or the pressures it faces yeah. or less informed in terms of the true science mm-hmm. and prospects. And that could be dangerous. Yes. So in closing, what gives you the greatest hope? Ah. You're a very optimistic person and very activist person. So what gives you hope, the greatest hope? My greatest hope is that I do think that it's amazing where we are in our stage of evolution in terms of science and technology, that biology revolution that went from DNA to genome to where we are today, right? And the digital technology that can bring us so far. So if we put them all to good use, I would say that we're going to have a much healthier, happier nation and people like you and me would live to over 100 years old in great health state. Well, I certainly hope so. And I just want to say thank you so much for your leadership and the leadership that the Academy has shown over this entire decade. And it's really been so vitally important, I think, to get us to where we are today. So we're very grateful to you and to the, to the Academies for the work that's been undertaken. And we wish you all the best in this next phase. I thank you for your leadership as well. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take As Directed featuring Dr. Victor Zhao, President of the National Academy of Medicine. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss our latest episodes. If you want to learn more about upcoming events and our work, please visit the CSIS Global Health Policy Center program page.